Welcome to this edition of This Is Design Intelligence, conversations with leadership voices in the built environment. This edition is sponsored by the Tricord Group, leading successful relationship constructs for over 25 years, and VIM, helping the architecture and design disciplines design, deliver, and operate better buildings for a better world. We're here today with Matthew Kahn. Matthew is a provost professor of economics at the University of Southern California. He is one of the leading voices in environmental economics. He is an extraordinary conversationalist, a fun man to talk to, a deep thinker that brings deep thoughts to the vernacular for everyone to be able to understand. And Matthew, I'm so glad that you joined me today on This Is Design Intelligence. Dave, thank you. It's great to be here. We had a wonderful conversation several weeks ago, and it led to us wanting to spend more time together. And it just happens to be that we're in a studio and we are getting to record our conversation. And I wanted to start out with this kind of question. When we consider the choreography like a dance of economics and the climate that we're living in, how can we best understand our individual roles in this delicate dance? So, Dave, when I teach USC's passionate students who care about the football team, but also deeply care about their future, I'm often asked questions by my students about how can microeconomics, my field, uh, so Dave, I am not a macroeconomist, so I hope we're not talking about interest rates today or the stock market. (laughs) No, not today. Um, (laughs) What I was taught at the University of Chicago uh, 30 years ago was the power of incentives where it can either be a financial price, this price on carbon to both decarbonize our economy and to foster the next Elon Musk in innovating, but also social incentives in a Berkeley, California, um, that we nudge. uh, There's an implicit nudge as you walk through the streets of Berkeley to live the green lifestyle. So Dave, to start this up, because there's several pieces to your question as we choreograph our dance, do you want to focus on the tie-in of how the chicken and egg issue of how does the economy influence the climate change challenge or how the climate change challenge influences the economy? Wow. Well, that's a great question because ultimately economics are truly micro. It has to do, economics are really about human behavior and spending and, and, and producing, aren't they, at the end of the day? So, and if we roll them all up into mag- massive size, we get to macroeconomics and major trends, but it I really want to start with how economics is driving climate outcomes. And I'm I'm very concerned about this, as you know. I'm concerned about it from two perspectives. One is a general sense of people being obtuse to the tie between economics and environmental outcomes. But even the perhaps the worst part is this assault on capitalism economics as if it was something evil that is in and of itself, inherently evil, producing climate degradation. Am I making sense? It's like it's like it's almost the pendulum swings from one end and then to the other. And so I'd like to talk and wander through some of this together. So I love the question. And Dave, for everybody listening, 
Um, I'm a free market environmentalist. I firmly believe that we can and we will set up the rules of the game of capitalism to achieve the win-win of ongoing economic growth. We need that to reduce poverty and to rebuild our middle class. And of course, we need to decarbonize. So Dave, there's a story on the internet that President Xi of China has just announced that China will no longer build coal-fired power plants in the rest of the world. It's the job of an economist to think through why. Uh, So this goes beyond microeconomics, but this is an example of what economists talk about the energy ladder, that as a nation grows from being poor to middle class, both its people and the nation as a whole burn dirty fuels, coal. Coal played a major role in China's industrialization. Something that fascinates environmental economists is as China grows even richer, will we see them climb the energy ladder of using less coal at home, switching to natural gas and the renewable power sector they're trying to foster right now? So Dave, an optimistic idea that I'm hoping we can discuss is this quality-quantity trade-off that as a person gets richer, of substituting perhaps from a fossil fuel vehicle to an electric vehicle. As a nation grows richer, passing clean air rules, passing legislation to reduce reliance on coal-fired power plants, this willingness as people grow richer, and if they grow richer through education, this willingness to upgrade and this quality versus quantity effect of capitalism. Let me try to do a better job. If somebody is very poor, they can't even afford a motorcycle, let alone a car. They may just walk around and have very low emissions. Nobody intends to cause climate change. A lot of our fossil fuel consumption for transportation and heating is due to a byproduct of wanting basic things we need to get through the day, like getting from here to there. Mm -hmm. So as people grow richer, What they've tended to do is consume more energy, buy a motorcycle, buy a used car, and these can be used fossil fuels and be highly polluting. The point I was trying to make with my quality versus quantity effect is as people grow even richer of further upgrading and purchasing higher quality vehicles, the Tesla, currently a rich person's product, an electric vehicle like the Chevy Volt, as these products become more affordable, This is an example of a product that more and more middle-class people can afford, created by capitalism, that helps to decouple enjoying the services of a private vehicle from creating greenhouse gas emissions. And that's what I meant by the quality, uh, quality upgrading under capitalism, fostering environmental progress. So when you think about with the vehicles, the recent infrastructure bill that was passed at around a trillion dollars, the reality is, is the vast majority of that has not nothing to do with infrastructure. The smaller portion of it does have to do with actual infrastructure. And a big piece of that has to do with putting in electric power charging stations for electric vehicles across the United States. We find that there is a resistance in our society to giving up our gas guzzlers in the fear that we will buy these electric vehicles. They won't operate the way that they should that the distance between charging stations will be too far. People will not be able to get long-distance driving in. And so how do you think about that in this delicate dance with sociology as well, the, the behavior of humans within society around these economic and climate challenges? I love this question. 
The Wall Street Journal two months ago wrote an article about the rise of electric vehicle trucks, and they quoted my work. So, Dave, I wrote a paper with Magali Delmas and Steve Locke where we introduced the concept of accidental environmentalists. An accidental environmentalist is a consumer who purchases a green product. It might be the Impossible Burger. It might be green architecture. It might be an electric vehicle. And they purchase it not because they're environmentalists, but because of the high quality of the product. And if it's the case that this product also is green, they're, they're okay with that. But this is not a group of Greta Thunbergs. The accidental environmentalists are a group of consumers seeking the best quality product price adjusted. And if it happens to be a green product, so be it. So Dave, in Berkeley, there's always going to be a crew purchasing the green products. But to truly green capitalism, you need Sarah Palin. You need John McCain's children purchasing the green products. And I claim that because of quality progress in capitalism, these accidental environmentalists are going to be a growing cohort. And so Elon Musk actually plays a key role in the environmental movement by producing products that are high quality for folks who, who the environment doesn't cross their mind. This is fantastic. So for the intentional environmentalists, the folk who have green on the front of their their color, <laughs> right? It, it, this is a little bit easier. But let's let's flip over to our world uh, at Design Intelligence, which is the built environment industry, dealing with all things real estate. Uh, very interesting. I had a dream, literally a, a dream. Uh, I woke up from a nap on a Sunday afternoon and. I sat up on the couch where I had been slumbering, and I suddenly thought, you know, my entire life has been from moving from building to building. I moved from a hospital to a house, from a house to a doctor's office, from a doctor's office to a nursery to a... You can see where I'm going with that. Our entire life, at least in the Western world, is moving from building to building, even when we end up in a funeral home at the end of life. It's a, it's a bizarre thing, isn't it? And so our entire world is the built environment. And the reality is, is the most of the built environment greenwashes their climate awareness. We talk a lot about it. We've been talking about it for 30 or 40 years. The world has continued to burn up. Buildings are responsible for 40% of all climate or carbon emissions. And yet, we as architects and engineers and contractors, quite frankly, blame the owners and the investors saying, well, if the charter for our project doesn't call for green, we can't force green on people. And so you find that so many of the investment community, at least up until 2020, has been somewhat resistant to embracing the green movement, just frankly, because they've considered it too costly. They can't get a return on that investment in the flip period of taking real estate, building it up, occupying it and selling it to someone else or whatever their modus operandi is, we find that there's a lot of social pressure now toward greening real estate. The question is, is it real? Or will it also be greenwashed with a lot of public relations? What is your advice to us about these, I'll call them these innocent or reluctant green people, on how do we create products and services within the built environment that attracts even these resistant green folk because they see the quality at a higher quantity entering the markets. 
So, Dave, this question fascinates me. I have a new book coming out next year on on my belief that remote work, people working from home two days a week at least, will continue for educated people. And what I argue in the book is that employers like a Google or smaller firms that have green buildings, if workers feel more productive and their quality of life and their biorhythms are better in such a building, they'll be more likely to come to work when the pandemic uh, attenuates a little bit. Yeah. And so, Dave, it's my belief that there's competitive advantage in the Michael Porter of Harvard Business School sense that those businesses that allow for remote work, but that create great green buildings, I think their workforce will be happier, more productive, and exposed to less indoor air pollution. Dave, my advice for your team is how this could be rigorously tested. My mother always says to me, Matthew, no magical thinking. If the green buildings are actually green, then they should have this treatment effect, just as the vaccine is effective. If one works in a green building, hard evidence that workers are more productive, exposed to less pollution, sleep better and feel less stress. And then I think your product would sell itself as the accidental environmentalists would eat their vegetables. Hmm. Defensible solutions, right? You've got to have data to prove your business case against these things at the end of the day. That's what it comes down to. And I add to that that young people are really passionate about these issues. So for firms that are hiring young people, of who's in these buildings, Dave? So if it's a group of people under age 40, I am really impressed with the environmental ethos of young people. And I don't think they're going to age out of this. No, I think this is a part of their DNA, just very much like different parts of our DNA were bred into us almost so societally. It has become a part of their lingua franca in everything that they do. It's extraordinary, isn't it? I love it. And a point, a point putting on my nasty University of Chicago hat, when workers are happy and productive, an idea from my training is you don't have to pay them combat pay. So in a setting where workers are proud of their firm, whether it's a Ben and Jerry's or another firm with a corporate righteousness, good culture, and a good building environment, firms don't have to pay combat pay. And so this isn't a, a, a for-profit firm can find this a profitable strategy. If they have a happy workforce, they face fewer retention issues. Fantastic. Let's flip the let's flip the equation here. We talked about how economics are driving environmental awareness and positive outcomes. Let's go the other direction. How is it that climate is now driving economic outcomes? This is a crucial question. In my new book, Adapting to Climate Change, let's jump around a little bit in the United States. I live in California, and the fires in California have been horrible. Berkeley filled with smoke from nearby fires, drought in the Los Angeles area. I get called from reporters about what's the future of farming in California. So that's a direct link. If there is greater drought in the West, and if we don't raise water prices, if farmers can't grow alfalfa, rice, avocados, what happens to output? What happens to food prices? What happens to less skilled workers who work there? So that's a direct causation of how climate affects the economy. Another example, with Hurricane Ida flooding Philadelphia for a few days, I was very interested that the University of Pennsylvania only canceled class for one day while other businesses were shut down longer. So, Dave, I've just given you a couple of examples. When natural disasters strike, 
Do our cities continue to function in our new remote work economy? When we have horrible drought and heat waves, what happens to, to harvest in the California West? So I'm very interested in, as Mother Nature throws harder punches at us, we're aware of this. How do we use capitalism to protect ourselves? And so that's the question. How do we? What do we do to protect this? I, I was reading a white paper recently put out by Bluefield Research, which is a group that does all things water. They're all about water. They, all, all of their research around the world is, is fantastic about water. And one of the things that they were predicting is that sometime in the next 10 years, we may start seeing water wars because of the shortage of waters. And I'm not talking about ranchers and farmers. I'm talking about nations against nations because of water shortages going on around the world and what that leads to, which is crop deprivation and the death of unbelievable number of people and livestock and how this can just decimate an economy, right? All over the world. I absolutely agree. And a theme in my book is the anticipation of misery actually creates new opportunities. So if an area is expected to face drought, there are benefits of encouraging people there to migrate to areas that would welcome them. My grandfather moved to America from Poland in 1920. One way to address drought in the developing world is to encourage migration to areas that are aging and that seek immigrants through a process of an orderly process of migration to avoid the, the horrors of what occurred in the Syrian migration a few years ago. So Dave, in the case of drought, a key issue is to use capitalism. If we're facing drought, recall from supply and demand. That means that we have less supply of water. The price of water should rise. If we expose more people especially non-poor people, to higher water prices, people in Los Angeles would rip their grass off their Kardashian lawns. <laughs> um, we would grow less alfalfa in the state and switch to crops that are less water intensive. So Dave, if I got a tattoo, it would say, give markets a chance to signal scarcity caused by climate change. Mm, that's fantastic. That'd be a long tattoo, but thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> but so how do you defend free market capitalism in the face of so much onslaught over the last 24, 48 months? The paradox that I wrestle with in my book is that in my work is that capitalism has caused climate change. The system of capitalism has allowed 8 billion people to live on our planet, and many of them are achieving the American dream. In his book, Collapse, Jared Diamond points out that it's that we could have a collapse of our society if all 8 billion people achieve the American dream level of consumption. Hmm. I think that people like you play a key role here. Coming back to my quality point, we need to upgrade the quality of our products. Buildings need to use less energy per worker. Vehicles need to use less fossil fuels per worker. These technological and design advances come from human ingenuity. So Dave, if I can ask you a question, in your field, have you seen technological progress? My father's a cardiologist and he's amazed by the improvements in knowledge during his long career. During in your career, have design experts made tangible progress on green design? It's interesting. Yes, they have. Just unquestionably, they have. But in spite of all of the technology that has entered, whether we're talking information technology around modeling buildings, the data trawls that come through to pick up that information, we still find ourselves collecting data 
but not exploiting the data appropriately. So it's like having a, a valley garage and and nobody parks in the garages out in San Fernando Valley, do they? They just pile the crap into them and, and then the cars they park out on the street. You know, it's kinda like that. And so we I think we have a lot of a lot of San Fernando Valley data garages where we just keep throwing data in there and not properly understanding how to exploit that data for what what is the data telling us? What is the story the data is telling us? What insights is the data telling us? We are become radically adept at collecting data. Some have done a good job at categorizing and normalizing data. Very, very few understand how to query the data in a way that will yield intelligent insights that will alter design and alter, you know, user occupancy. Uh, within these buildings. It's the same when it comes to how data is not being appropriately used for building product manufacturing. I think that we get what I call inch-deep breakthroughs where suddenly we see something and we don't keep digging to go further on what might be exploited from an insight. It's interesting because we we speak often about a functional epistemology, about how we have all this knowledge, but we really don't understand. And it's that insight trigger that moves us from knowledge to understanding. And so we sometimes stop at knowledge without seeking insight that will trigger understanding. And I'm talking across many different fields of knowledge. The one insight that economics can add there, the Texas freeze in February 2021 scared the hell out of me. And I'd make this optimistic point. For business people, when we allow prices to reflect scarcity, the, those data become incredibly valuable during times when prices for water or scarce electricity yes. soar. Yes. It becomes much more valuable to be efficient. So let us do. Let me prove my deep point by counterexample. If the price of water is zero, there's no gains for hiring a civil engineer to find efficiency because waste, you're not punished for waste. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and so you're speaking to the counterintuitive here because it's usually when things are going really well that we're somewhat dumb, fat, and happy. And we're, you know, so there's no crisis to solve. But at the end of the day, often when we're in crisis, we are just simply trying to get to the other side of the broken bridge, as opposed to understanding how did we get a broken bridge in the first place and taking that time to be contemplative and dig for answers. And this is where economics can play a major part because at least in the Western world and particularly the U.S., world, we are fundamentally an economy. We live and breathe our economics on a daily basis. People are front of mind conscious of economics. They can't translate economics all, often into the day-to-day -day understanding of why they buy this or why they consume that or why they turn away from something or why something is three days late when they expected it two days ago, etc. And I think it is incumbent upon the economics community to bring economics down into a level of pragmatism and vernacular for the day-to-day -day person to understand their part in the giant economic machine and what that can mean to literally turn the tide ecologically, certainly, socially, dealing with prejudice, marginalization, uh, exclusive versus inclusive. It all, at the end of the day, to me, comes down to our understanding of economics and economic behavior. I agree with you. I became an economist because I would read the New York Times when I was a teenager, 
And there, there would be declarative statements about how the world worked. And I, I was impressed with the reporter's self-confidence. And economists don't have all the answers, but I think we really highlight the trade-offs and we anticipate unintended consequences. So Dave, if a worker works in a, in a nasty building that doesn't have some of the green features that your team works on, that worker will be exposed to more lifetime pollution. That worker's firm will create more greenhouse gas emissions. And so something that fascinates me is we all face trade-offs. Our listeners today face a trade-off. Listen, it does. They, they could be playing speed chess or doing something else. When we don't consume green products, we are taking greater risks. And are we aware of these risks of almost like being at a casino and betting on a number in roulette? And I think that climate change increases the risks we face. I think that if we can depoliticize this discussion and make this a national security issue rather than a progressive conservative issue, more accidental environmentalists will acknowledge the trade-offs we face, want to protect their grandchildren and vote their pocketbook on green products that accelerate the green transition. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Dave, I have a question. I, for two years, was working in Baltimore at Johns Hopkins. And a point that urban economists make is that in a growing city, there are new buildings. There's new homes, new buildings, new roads. In an older city like Detroit, in a city that's not building much new, in your work, have there been opportunities to green buildings in shrinking cities like Baltimore versus growing cities like Las Vegas? Yeah, it's really interesting. I think it really is a regional dynamic that happens and local architects and developers and investors and engineers and contractors city by city are taking up this charge. Certainly, we see it in Detroit, where not only national firms are playing there, but the local regional firms are looking to, and, and have been for the last few years, renewing that city. And so much of the filtering is through a green lens. We certainly see it in what we'll call secondary cities like Austin, Texas, or Nashville, Tennessee, or Boise, and other places. It, it really becomes more localized rather than national firms doing it. It really is folks picking up the, the gauntlet and saying, I'll take the challenge of greening our community of saying goodbye to rust and saying hello to green. And we're, we're pretty excited about that when we see that coming out. And the AIA does a pretty good job of celebrating these folks and their design work. And the uh, Urban Land Institute does the same thing. So often these, these communities don't get the same press as the major cities, the primary cities, and the big players that play there. But we're excited when we do see these regional folks stepping up and taking the bull by the horns. We see it in Cleveland, for instance. There's some wonderful things happening in Cleveland. Uh, I live in Atlanta, and we've now become one of the primary cities. We're just a little over 6 million people here. I can't believe it, how quickly we've grown over time. But you can see in Phoenix, there's been some very positive uh, climate positive work. I'm a major fan of a fellow by the name of Dr. Pablo LaRoche. Pablo is the is a professor at Cal Poly Pomona. He is also the head of sustainability for a global architecture firm called Callison RTKL. Pablo does just this wonderful thing. He speaks no longer about just sustainability. All of his language is changed to climate positive. We're building climate positive buildings. We're designing climate positive uh, processes. I, I, I just love the optimism that's in that idea of climate positive. 
what's so important here, there was a very sad article that half of all teens are extremely worried about their future because of climate change. And on one hand, I respect this realism. But on another level, I think we both agree as slightly older gentlemen of the importance. They are lucky, in my opinion, to be living their lives in the future. And it's up to our generation to design rules of the game to create a better future than what they currently expect. Yeah, and we're late. Uh, let's just be, we've got to own that. The baby boomer generation has got to own the fact that we're late to the party. Uh, and even the older Gen Xers in that group, we have been listening for 40 years to this message and kind of yawned and go, yeah, great, whatever. And and we haven't stepped <laughs> right. in. We didn't stride in with the energy that we're watching today. And so... But yet, these generations I've just spoken of, these older generations, still carry the, the most of the capital. And so it's incumbent on them to not be wasteful or irresponsible with the responsibility they've given. They've been given the, the finances, the capabilities. It's so critical toward at this later living stage of our life for us to empower the next generation to make good I on agree. what we did not make good on. Dave, I wanted to ask a green finance question. In the design community, has Wall Street, whether it's Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan, are the banks giving the green design community greater access to finance, or are they asking hard questions about the rate of return and payback period? Will the green design industry be able to borrow at a more favorable terms going forward to finance more ambitious green projects? I would like to believe that that's the case. I don't believe that it is mainstream at this point. It's more on the front. I'm going to call it initial anecdotal. I do believe that that wave is mounting toward that because at the end of the day, everyone is going to be voting with their pocketbook around this, the banks are, and the investors, et cetera. Uh, if for no other reason, even if they don't believe it, they're going to do it because it's what's socially acceptable at the end of the day. So that peer pressure, if nothing else, if they don't have a conviction, at least they're convinced that they need to make some changes. And so I believe that we're on the front end of that, but it is not mainstream. How do we create mainstream incentives for banks, for financiers, for investors to drive preferential financing? I think you said it earlier, we need to be more conscious of the business case, the economic case, the finance case that is defensible from which we can, you know, show our facts and figures. And Let me give uh, a piece of good news there. Yeah. Niels Koch and I wrote a paper 10 years ago where we documented in an apples to apples comparison in California that Energy Star homes and homes with solar panels sold for a significant price premium relative to an observationally similar home without those green features. So, Dave, a theme of my work as a statistics kind of freakonomics guy is to use big data to look for these clues of what markets are telling us about the green premium. Is there a green premium for green products? In our world, we need to move that beyond single-family residential into large commercial, into healthcare, into the university buildings, into shopping and retail and entertainment, into workplace. And across these multiple mega sectors, we need to take that same thinking, that same analysis, and put it side by side so we can see did it, does, it. does it carry the commercial value? 
Yeah. So Dave, when, when I moved to Los Angeles, I got in touch with the city because they were building Energy Star libraries throughout the city. And I said, guys, can you give me the energy consumption for your Energy Star buildings relative to the old built conventional buildings you used to build? Because I'd like to calculate the savings in energy expenditure by going green. And they said, Matt, leave us alone. But, but I, <laughs> I, 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 as a statistical nerd, was pursuing your agenda and we didn't even know each other yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it, I think that we now have the technology Technology. We have much more access to data than we've had before. There is a, a new sensibility to this that's out there. So I believe that if there was a an intentional pursuit, a program for all intents and purposes, that could get, be much more intentional around the collection, the normalization, the exploitation of the data, I think we could find some pretty good business cases, couldn't we? If we have time, I wanted to tell you a Walmart story. Yeah, sure. Um, I had the opportunity. This was not consulting. I was not paid for this. We were given access by Walmart. And what fascinated me was this was a study in California of how Walmart superstores, their monthly electricity consumption, how that compared to small mom and pop stores if you added up all the mom and pop stores. So Dave, if, if a, a nerdy example, if Walmart box stores are big. If those equal 20 mom and pop stores, the main hypothesis we were studying is that a Walmart is more energy efficient per square foot than those 20 stores, individual stores, because of Walmart's human capital, blueprints, and access to big data hmm. to optimize their operations. So Dave, my critic said, Matt, this is interesting, but it's a little elitist. You're saying big capitalism has an edge in getting energy efficient relative to mom and pop stores. Dave, what do you think of that? Uh, think give that a B plus? Yeah, I would give it a B plus. I think there's some more work to be done there, but I love the story. And honestly, folks at Walmart, folks at Target, folks at some of these other large places where they have huge footprints and lots of commerce and humans moving around, I would think that they'll get behind this and allow us access to their data so we can figure this stuff out. I was very encouraged. I, I think it's an interesting hypothesis because, Dave, you mentioned data before, those San Fernando Valley garages, that, that these companies with these in this age of big data. Uh, so have you been involved with sensors and, and keeping tabs on which rooms are occupied? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, can you give me some specifics there? So I'm fascinated by this ocean of data we have. Well, so we're watching this meteoric rise in this industry called property technology or prop tech as it's referred to. It has come pretty much almost from nowhere to becoming billions upon billions, tens of billions of dollars of value. There are so many providers, manufacturers, vendors pushing their sensory uh, gadgets around. And of course, all of this works under the auspices of Internet of Things, you know. Yes. And so it, it is an exciting new world to be able to, to literally measure the nap on the carpet and the performance of the carpet, much less looking at how many times the door opened and closed and whether the hinges are, are holding up or whether it's how many times a light bulb is turned on or off and on and off or the way the, that energy is being consumed through the mechanicals or the water is dripping in the sinks. It, it's extraordinary what is possible but the reality is, is that with all that possibility, it is still on the front end. Americans are funny people. We believe that we need to protect our privacy at all costs. Somewhat self-deluded because we've, we will still go to 
Amazon and order things and Facebook and play around and think we're protecting our privacy. Or we'll go to, in my store, we go to Kroger down here in the South. And of course, if you want that extra 20% off of that thing, you have to swipe your little card, right? And then suddenly they know it's me and they know I just got 20% off of that item. We are giving away our data. It, it just unbelievable. But then we have this false concept that we need to protect ourselves against sensors in rooms that will tell how many times I walked in this door and turned on this faucet. It's a funny thing, isn't it? I think that if it doesn't feel like it's good for me, then I don't want to give my data away. And the reality is that there is a bigger agenda here, isn't there? It's the agenda of doing what is right and good and true Climate-wise, ecologically, it is time for us to give up our false sense of this silly privacy to be able to get a hold of our collective data, to be able to design better buildings, better infrastructure to sustain us so that our children and our grandchildren can live in a better world than we lived in. And so maybe I'm being too simplistic about it, but I do see this strange dichotomy in American behavior around data and data access. And so there's somewhat of the conflict between the ability to collect data. The prop tech world is unbelievably uh, adept at doing that. The question is, is are we worried about privacy rights and what all of that means in the context of IoT? I agree with you. A very talented economist, Glenn Wild, has argued that that Facebook, people perusing on Facebook should be paid for that activity because they're supplying data. So Dave, one way to reward employees would be an opt-in without creeping them out of paying them for, for this opt-in that their data can, that they can be identified with their data that the artificial intelligence algorithms would then process. Yeah. So an example. Suppose there's a passionate environmentalist working at Google. She may never raise her thermostat, but even on a hot day, sort of like a Japanese worker, she may just sit there due to voluntary restraint. That person doesn't need a financial incentive and doesn't need a robot turning off her thermostat. She's going to, she's never going to turn it on. And so that sort of heterogeneity fascinates me. Who needs an incentive to do the right thing versus who engages in voluntary restraint and doesn't need such a nudge from a computer? or from an environmentalist. I just think this has been an extraordinary conversation that should be punctuated with a comma. And you and I need to do this again very soon. And we'll just call it part two conversation between Matt and Dave. <laughs> I just I, think, I, love it. I think we have not gone far enough and we have barely scratched the surface of the landscape of topics and themes that are critically important to the built environment, certainly to our audiences. And I would like to do this again with you. Matthew, thank you for joining us on This is Design Intelligence. Dave, it's great to be here. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of This is Design Intelligence. Sponsored by the Tricord Group and Vim. The producer for This Is Design Intelligence is Laura Spells. Sound engineering by Jared Knabel. This has been a DI Media Group production.